The Holy Gospel according to St. John, chapter 8. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, you are my, truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, We are descendants of Abraham and have never been slaves to anyone. What do you mean by saying you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Very truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not have a permanent place in the household. The son has a place there forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Please be seated. Well, today is Reformation Sunday, which, um, well, Lutherans anyway regard as kind of a big deal. Before COVID, when we... Uh, at new member classes, I always uh, offered a, uh, a Martin Luther 101 kind of presentation, which I haven't done now since before COVID. And um, given the fact that since then we've welcomed quite a few new members, and given the fact that even for lifelong Lutherans and Gloria Day members, a little review probably isn't a terrible idea once in a while. On this Reformation Sunday, I want to begin with an abridged version of the first chapter or two of Martin Luther 101, which will take us as far as the events now remembered as the birth of the Reformation on October 31, 1517, 505 years ago in Germany, where 10 years or so earlier, a young German monk was in an Augustinian monastery studying to become a Roman Catholic priest and his name was Martin Luther. And he was a great student. He became not only a priest, but also a doctor of biblical studies. But though he thrived academically, he struggled mightily spiritually. The image he had of God in those days, indeed an image of God that was predominant in, of God in those days, was this terrifying image of a holy and perfect God who hated sin and punished all sinners who didn't stop sinning. And Luther, as a monk, worked and worked as hard as anyone I think has ever worked at stopping sinning so that he could be accepted by God. But he also happened to be unblinkingly honest. And he knew that not just he himself knew, but that God knew. That in thought, word, and deed, he hadn't freed himself of all sin, no matter how hard he'd tried. It was a very low time for Luther spiritually. His faith did not give him joy but rather brought him to the very edge of a deep despair. His superior and confessor, a wonderful man uh, by the name of Staupitz, told Luther not to be so hard on himself, just to love God. He said, love God. I hate God. The God he hated, being in his mind a God who demands a perfect righteousness that we sinners, we real people, can't accomplish and then punishes us for not accomplishing it. That's when Staupitz decided that his young monk needed a little time out in the real world. 
And so he assigned him uh, to be a parish priest and a professor of biblical studies at a relatively small college in a relatively small town called Wittenberg in Germany. And one of the classes he taught was on the book of Psalms. And getting ready for one of those classes, he came to Psalm 22, verse 1, which says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which you may recall is the verse that Jesus quoted while hanging on the cross. And a light sparked on in Luther's mind and in his soul as he found himself thinking, Wait! I have been thinking that I, I am forsaken by God and no one understands how I feel. And here's someone who understands how I feel, and it's Jesus. Luther turned in his Bible to the book of Romans, which we heard read just a bit ago, where Paul writes that we are justified in our relationship with God. That is to say, we are made right, we are healed, we are lined up, like when you justify margins in a document. We are straightened up in our relationship with God, not by all the good things we do to impress God into loving us, but rather as a gift, a free gift, given free of charge through faith in the righteousness of Jesus and all the good things he's done because God loves us. That new understanding of God, not as the enemy of sinners, but as the friend and savior of sinners, turned Luther spiritually and joyfully upside down. No longer was God his enemy in a far-off heaven, damning him for not having enough perfect righteousness to get there. God, rather, was the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who'd come from a throne in heaven to a cross on earth, and in so doing, clothing us in his righteousness, which is perfect. And it wasn't something that we earned. It was free. It was a gift. It was, to use the Bible's word for this kind of thing, grace. And Luther started preaching that. At about that very same time, a representative of the Pope in Rome, a man named Tetzel, came to Luther's Germany to raise money for a building program in Rome by selling what were called indulgences, which were pieces of paper from the Pope which promised the forgiveness of sin to those who bought them. And the more you bought, which is to say the more money you gave, the more forgiveness you got. Well. People, in fact, were told that if you gave enough money, you could buy forgiveness not just for yourself, but also for your dead relatives who were stuck in purgatory and suffering there for their sins. Tetzel came to Germany preaching and selling that. In his sermons, he would talk about this angry and righteous God. He would talk to people, most of them poor peasants, about their dead relatives stuck suffering in purgatory. And he'd say, don't you care about them? Is anything on earth more important than them? Are you that heartless? It was a very effective fundraiser. But when Luther got word of it, he was furious. Selling God's forgiveness, he said, that was exactly the opposite of the free gift of forgiveness he'd found promised in the Bible. Luther was still a Roman Catholic who at this time believed that there indeed was a place called purgatory, but he was furious about being told that the God of purgatory could be bought off. He said to one of his friends, the Pope has no jurisdiction over purgatory, and if he does, he should empty the place free of charge. Tetzel kept preaching, and forgiveness kept being sold. Money kept being raised. 
And Luther kept saying, this is not right. The church has to stop doing this. So what he did was make a list of things he thought the church was wrong in saying and teaching because they were the opposite of what he heard the Bible saying and teaching. And getting on a real roll, he came up with 95 things. And on October 31, 1517, 505 years ago tomorrow, what he did was nail a copy of those 95 things. He called them the 95 Theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, Germany. There's a copy of them on the door of this church you may or may not have noticed when you came in. The church in those days, the bulletin board was kind of a place where people put things they wanted to publicize. He wrote them in Latin which was the language of scholars, because his point wasn't to get people all worked up, but rather to get the church to reform, to get straightened up by getting back in line with the Bible. He was hoping that his 95 theses would lead to a conversation about, amongst church leaders and scholars who would then see the error of their ways, then to change, to reform their ways. He was particularly hopeful that when the Pope heard what people were doing in, Ger in Germany in his name, he would make them stop because it was wrong. It was not according to Scripture, which exactly did not happen. Rather, long story short, when Luther spoke the truth to power and money, power and money told him to shut up and get back in line with the party line. And when he refused, he was excommunicated from the church with a bounty on his head and a death penalty waiting if he was captured. As it turns out, however, there were more than a few Germans who thought he was right, or at least thought he had the right to say the things he said and think the things he thought. Some of them were powerful as well and they protected him. And many of them followed him from the Roman Catholic Church to become what eventually became known to Luther's chagrin, he hated this name, became known as the new and reformed Lutheran Church. I always want to be clear in these days 500 years removed from Ruth Luther and the Reformation that to celebrate Reformation Sunday and genuinely to give thanks to God for the life and witness of Martin Luther is not to fire a shot over the bow of today's Roman Catholic Church, whose Pope Francis, I think, for example, Luther would probably greatly admire. I also, by way of um, wanting to speak the, uh, the whole truth, which, you know, it's not popular to look self-critically at your history these days uh, in some circles, but I think by way of speaking the whole truth, it's important to be clear that while I view Luther as one of the absolute giants in church history, um, he was surely not infallible, he was surely not perfect, and never in this world did he ever become a former sinner. He kept being one. And, uh, and so in his arguments with Rome, his rhetoric uh, sometimes went um, sinfully too far. We celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Reformation with our Roman Catholic friends at St. Mary's, and one thing we both did together was confess that, that in our breakup, um, um, we wronged each other along the way. Also, and worse, far worse, late in his life, uh, he said some sinfully God-awful things 
about Jews and Judaism. Some point to the fact that just as systemic racism remains ever near the surface in America in our time, systemic anti-Semitism was ever near the surface in Europe in Luther's time. And even giants like Luther are products of their time. Others point to the fact that perhaps due to some painfully painful health issues that he had suffered in his late years in life, quite a few of his late writings had a, had a more strident and angry tone to them, which may all well be true, just doesn't excuse them. Fact is that when you are one of history's giants, your flaws, your sins, are more apt to have giant consequences. A truth realized when the Nazis in the last century uh, dug up and widely circulated uh, Luther's very worst comments about Jews. And Luther was, is a hero in Germany. They used them as evidence that Luther would bless their final solution. I want to be clear that the ELCA is among the church bodies who have explicitly rejected Luther's statements on these matters, while also acknowledging with truth-telling sorrow that Lutheran giants like Dietrich Bonhoeffer are notwithstanding, the state church in Germany uh, in the 1930s and 40s, both Catholic and Lutheran, they were both strong, uh, shirked from speaking the truth to power. Instead, in too many cases, either to turn a blind eye to what was going on, or in a few horrible cases, to actually even endorse what was going on, thus to get closer to money and power. Which reminds us that celebrating the Reformation isn't an occasion for a diatribe against the Roman Catholic Church, but rather a reminder to Christ's entire church, including Luther's Lutherans, to ever be open to the voice of the Spirit calling us to change when we are the ones who've drifted off course. When Luther was bringing his A-game, and he had a great A-game, he faithfully and powerfully filled with the Holy Spirit called the church to reform its way back home by being a home and a witness to a God who above all is a God of grace reaching in love to all. I am personally of the mind that the church in this country these days is in dire need of that same powerful and spiritual and faithful reform movement all over again. Addressing the fact that the church's loudest voices these days seem to be decidedly not of love and grace but of hate and fear often sycophantically co-mingling with the hateful and fearful who are in power. While those who do profess to know a, lot, a God of love and grace seem too often not to raise their voices. Luther, when he was bringing his A-game, and he had a great A-game, reminds us that the church can only bring its A-game when it is gathered by, rooted in, and faithfully, boldly bearing witness to God's grace. 
Luther, like St. Paul, Luther's champion and hero, because he did passionately assert that if we are saved by the grace of God rather than good works of us, faced pushback all the time, both he and Paul did, by people who said, well, if, if you're saying that God loves us and will even welcome us to heaven someday, not as a reward for being good, but even, even in spite of the fact that we keep sinning, it sure sounds like you're saying we can do whatever we please. There's a lot of responses to that. Um, one um, being that if you say you have faith in God and that you love God, but aren't interested in giving even a passing darn to the desires of God for your life, um, that surely doesn't sound like either faith or love, does it? Luther also observed that living according to the desires of God by doing all the good you can do is an essential component. He never said works don't matter. He said that it's, a, and it's an, an essential component to a life of faith, not because God needs your good works, but because your neighbor does. Good works don't get you loved or get you to heaven, in other words. What good works do is get something of the love of heaven into this world where the love of heaven is sorely needed. All of which is proclaimed and witnessed to Lutherans, among others, understand. In the waters of our baptism, where we came, or if we were infants, where we were brought, where if we were Kate Van Wanning, where we were brought right here. As the children of this world, world that we were born into and born as, then to be washed and born anew, born from above, is the language John uses in his gospel, in the water of the Holy Spirit, who from that day forward promised never to stop reminding us calling us, leading us, wooing us to be the children of God that we now are and can be and are meant to be in this world, not by way of religiously earning God's love for us, but by way of gratefully and joyfully and faithfully being God's love, which is not just for us. It's also for God's world. Today, Kate, in what is called the rite of affirmation of baptism, will join those of us who are old enough to say for ourselves what we couldn't say, what you couldn't say, Kate, uh, when you were baptized as an infant. Uh, that being, I believe. I believe as much as I can today. Tomorrow I'll believe as much as I can tomorrow. Sometimes I've had confirmands uh, think that somehow um, their faith needs to be this perfect faith when they confirm their faith. Well, let's go back to grace, shall we? We bring the faith we have. And then we say that uh, we want to continue to grow into my identity, our identity, as a child of God, a child of love. That is the love of God freely by grace alone given to me, but also freely by the leading of the Holy Spirit alive in me to be given to others, to the glory of God, and for the healing of God's world. The rite of affirmation of baptism, however, I want to be very clear, is not meant to be uh, just a one-and-done kind of deal on one particular day. It's really rather meant to be a way of life in which every day 
we all step up out of the waters of God's grace, which has claimed us as God's own, then graced, forgiven, loved anew, and again this day to be God's own in the church and the world, that God's love might ever continue forming and reforming this world that God does love. To that end, I invite all of you now, if you choose, to answer again for yourself. The same question Kate pretty soon will be asked to answer for herself. Do you intend to continue in the covenant God made with you in baptism? To live among God's faithful people? To hear the word of God? Share in the Lord's Supper? To proclaim the good news of God in word and deed? To serve all people following the example of Jesus? and to strive for justice and peace in all the earth? If so, you may respond, I do and I ask God to help and guide me. I do and I ask God to help and guide me. May it be so. And may the Reformation continue. Amen.